The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. Sports MLB Show. Here are your hosts, the luckiest men on the face of the earth, Chase Fedorsky and Bryce Holden. Welcome to a very special edition of the Underdog Sports Baseball Show. Uh, today, I am joined by Dan Levitt and Mark Moore, and they are the authors of the new book, Intentional Balk, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Uh, I was saying to both of them before we started recording, read the whole book in 24 hours. It was the first time in a long time I've read a book cover to cover. I couldn't put it down. Uh, thank you guys both for joining us this week. Really appreciate it. And uh, excited to talk baseball with you both. Great to be here. Sounds, sounds great, Chase. Love talking baseball. So, you know, a little bit about both of you. Both of you are big members of uh, the Sabre community, the Society of American Baseball Research. Um, so big stat guys. And I know in the past you've collaborated on books that involve, you know, the composition of what makes a championship team and what teams survived, what teams didn't. Um, so this is kind of a big 180 from that, I would say. Uh, so what was your inspiration for coming together uh, and researching this topic, the history of uh, cheating in baseball? Well, you know, part of it was that if, as we've sort of seen all, all the different stories about cheating in the last several years, whether it's the sign stealing or goop on the baseball, um, you know, any any of the, the the stuff that's been going on, it's all been treated in isolation, and there hasn't been a lot of context around it, and there's no historical background to it. And Mark and I, as baseball historians, just sort of looked at each other and said, you know, there, there's got to be more to this story. I mean, there's connections between these different types of cheating. Why is some cheating viewed so much differently than other types of cheating? And, you know, how's it changed throughout history? Um, what are some of the funny stories, just if you're going to do a book? And so we really decided just to take a look at sort of it from the, you know, context and connections between the types of stories, because there, there's, there's so much going on here that it's not just this is good, this is bad, uh, this we don't care about. There's just a lot of nuance in there. Yeah, I would also say that um, um, the most recent well, the two books we collaborated on earlier were both, as you say, largely about the front office and how great teams are built. And the last book, especially, we sort of leaned into like, what does baseball operations really do? What are the innovations that have happened over the over the last hundred years that certain teams have been really smart about taking advantage of? And that goes up through and including Moneyball and analytics and stuff like that. And I think that we saw one of the things we we kind of came to was that there is a significant overlap in the the uh, teams and the players and the front office people that were the most competitive, intelligent, innovative, and the teams that had difficulty sort of staying within the lines that that there, it wasn't completely unrelated that the the teams that are you know lackadaisical and maybe lazy that you know if, if you're a fan of i don't know who the pirates or the tigers 
those are not the teams that are cheating typically. It's the it's the really smart egghead teams. I mean, during the science dealing thing, not only the Astros, who were the who were probably considered the most brilliant uh, uh, team of 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 their of their time, and maybe even still, but the other teams that came up during that controversy um, just prior to the Astros included the Red Sox and the Yankees and the Dodgers, and and these are all the smartest, best teams that are filled with front offices that are that are come from Ivy League schools and and big business schools and everything. So I think that we also believe that that cheating is not it is not necessary. They don't necessarily you can you can win without cheating, but that that competitive ruthless spirit that is instilled in the best front offices also carries with it the risk of going too far. Yeah. I mean, I could tell you as a Yankee fan, um, having been on the losing side of the trash can scandal uh, and dealing with the sealed letter with the Apple watch, I definitely understand all too well how uh, too much of a good thing when it comes to analytics uh, could ultimately come back and backfire. Uh, One thing I want to ask you guys about the title of the book itself, because we've actually seen, I feel like prior to the past two years, the intentional balk itself was something I, at least as a 26 year old, had never seen in baseball. And now as teams are getting more and more paranoid about sign stealing, I've seen guys do it a couple of times this year. Um, Where did this title come from, given that it's not something, at least that I have seen very prominently in baseball over the years? Well, I I can, I guess I can try this. Um, I I wish I could tell you that it was some kind of brilliant foresight. We we (laughs) really for the most part thought that intentional Bach was a kind of a good play on words of, of the intentional walk. And the Bach is, is a title that our publisher liked because it implied sneakiness and deception, which is kind of what we were going for. What had not happened at the time we came up with this title is teams literally intentionally balking. Like <laughs> that actually hadn't happened. And I think it's, um, it's sort of funny for us, but we didn't really intend this intentional buck to become a thing. I don't, I don't believe I didn't really anticipate it, but the idea of the buck, which is, um, you know, I don't think people think of it as cheating necessarily, but it's certainly right on the edge of, of the idea of deception, trying to fool a base runner in this case. And I think that we, we just thought that, you know, the sneakiness angle would, would, would be a good touch for the title. Yeah. I mean, it, we, it was, it was, I give Mark most of the credit for coming up with the title. And again, it was sort of the way it sounded, the, the plan intentional walk and yeah, it, it's just sort of fortuitous or serendipitous that at this point now people are actually talking about intentional box as a way to get, you know, get rid of sign stealing from second base theoretically. Yeah, sometimes it's all about just timing. Um, and and definitely, you know, something that I love in terms of timing throughout the book that I think you guys did a great job on is I love the idea of the sort of player or the player doctrines or tenets that the book sort of surround. Um, and the three that stood out to me, one was the Hornsby doctrine, which you guys said, uh, based off Hall of Fame second baseman Rogers Hornsby, players will and should break whatever rules they can get away with. Uh, one was the Russo doctrine. Jim Russo was a longtime Orioles scout. Uh, and that idea was sort of everybody cheats. We're just another team cheating. This is a fight for, for survival. 
Uh, and then the third one that really stood out to me was the Dobson Doctrine. Um, and that's the, the idea sort of linked with PEDs where it's, we're going to do whatever we can to stay in the lineup, uh, be it for medical reasons or just to stay on the field. You know, if you're a fringe major league player, um, especially over the past 25, 30 years, where, as you guys mentioned, we had PEDs, we've had sign stealing, we've had spider tech and, you know, goop on the baseball. Which of those three doctrines do you think have led to the most cheating in the modern era in the past 30, 40 years of baseball? Well, I think they've all led to different types of cheating, which is sort of what I think makes makes the book fun. And I'll just start with Hornsby because you brought him up first. I mean, the kind of stuff that Hornsby's talking about um, wasn't really like do anything you can to win, although he, he would have. He, he was talking about a lot of the sort of deception of the umpire kind of stuff that everybody did back then. You know, if you've trapped a ball in the outfield, you held the ball up and said you caught it. You had the phantom tag at second base. If you were turning the double place, you could turn it quicker. If you were first base, when you pulled your foot off the bag, maybe a half second early so that you could, you know, get, get the out, you catch the ball a half second early and get the out. And, and so all of that stuff on the field, I think, is sort of what what Hornsby was was going at a lot. Like, if you're going to play this game, you're playing to win, and you're going to do anything you can. So, I, I think that that clearly had to do with the player side of what you do on the field. The Russo doctrine was more of sort of a front office doctrine. He was talking about how when you're trying to sign players, you do anything you can to sign players. Um, you know, even if it's illegal. I mean, he was told one story about a train going through Texas when they were giving large bonuses to amateurs to get them to sign. And if you went over $4,000, there was some additional penalties. So you tried to hide if you paid somebody more than $4,000. And, you know, there was a story, he told the story of a train going and they were trying to hand somebody a sack of hundred dollar bills out a train window and it went blowing away. Um, so I think that the reality is, is that if you're um, sort of at this team level and cheating and how you're getting players, I think that that can be much more impactful on how a team actually does than, you know, a, a sign stealing here, not that those aren't significant or there. So um, I, I just think that this, the roster, um, the, the, the roster shenanigans, um, you know, John Capolella, who was the GM of the Braves, got banned for life for, for, for those types of shenanigans uh, just like five years ago for um, illegally um, signing, you know, just, just deceptively signing um, players out of Latin America. So I, I think on the one side, you got the players and on the other side, you got the front office. And I think they're each equally, you know, um, <laughs> equally likely to cheat when you get competitive people in those spots. I think one of the things that happened with the doctrines for us, which, which was not really something that we thought of until we were well into the project you know, we, we started out with, by defining what cheating was, and, and, and we sort of stuck with that. Like the cheating is, um, you know, you're breaking a rule and we know what rules are. We, we, we defined what, you know, the rule book and the major league rule book and, and rule, you know, the collective bargaining agreement and other agreements that people have made. And if you deliberately violate one of the tenants in the, in those books and you do so in order to help your team or yourself win then that's cheating but what we found to be even more interesting was that in reality the players and the people within the game have sort of their own 
almost unwritten uh, rule book, not not unwritten rules in the way that they're normally that that term is usually used, but but rather it's this sort of notion that there are some rules in the rule book that we don't really want to be applied all the time, and there are other and that would be um, even things like the spitball. We don't really want the umpire to go out to the mound every time they think somebody's has put lubrication on the ball. Um, or this, some of the stuff that Dan was talking about with like the, the neighborhood play in baseball, the, the, the players sort of agree, like, we know it's happening. We're doing it too. We don't really want it called. And, and that was probably true. That certainly was true of amphetamines for many years. We don't really, you know, we, we kind of agree it's okay. Um, and then, you know, there are also things like, uh, you know, like sign stealing that for a hundred years were, there was no rule against it, but everybody kind of didn't want it to happen. So there's this sort of secondary sort of list that the players are actually going by. And that's how sort of some of these doctrines come into play is that the, the players are essentially in the players and the people within the game are really in charge of how the game works and how the how they want the game to be um, administered, and ultimately that is what wins. Um, and that's when the how the doctrines come into play. It's like Tony Gwynn saying, "Okay, yes, amphetamines and steroids are both um, illegal in the same way, but this is really how we behave. We behave so that one of them is is one level of crime, and one of them is a different level of crime." Um, so I think we. We kind of like the idea that that the players or the people who win the game are sort of ultimately are deciding what the rules are. So I think sort of along those lines, you know, you mentioned the unwritten rules, and I actually had a question ready to go on that. You know, do you think ultimately, obviously the players themselves are the ones through any type of cheating throughout baseball history, the players themselves ultimately are the ones who commit the act of cheating 9.9 out of 10 times. Um, but as you mentioned, you know, throughout history, we've also seen time and time again, whether it's a team's front office or the commissioner's office, that there haven't been an enforcement of the rules or there haven't been punishment hand, punishments handed down um, when rules are broken. So do you guys think, like, where do you guys think the balance lies between holding players accountable and holding ownership management and the commissioner's office accountable in terms of you know, players cheating and holding them accountable uh, and ultimately doling out punishments. Well, I, I would I would take a shot at that. And I, I would say that if the if you if the penalty doesn't match the crime, you, you're going to have a problem because, um, you know, there's there. I mean, one of the quotes I wish we would have found before the book came out was George Bamberger, the old manager of the Mets and Brewers. You know, he basically talked about cheating as sort of a cost benefit analysis. He said, we don't play baseball. We play professional baseball. You know, I'm, I'm um, you know, we look at, you know, what can we get away with and what's the penalty? You know, right. They, they aren't looking at it in terms in many ways of what's right and wrong. They're looking at it as if I can do this and it'll help me win, then I'm going to do it. And if I get caught and, and, and so and what's my chance of getting caught? And if I get caught, what's the penalty? And when you have a disconnect there. That, that's where you have the problem. Like if you take steroids in the 1990s, it was clearly against the rules. It, it was clearly wrong. I mean, you know, every, the players all believed that taking steroids is wrong. And yet there was no way, you, 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 since you couldn't test people, 
there, there was no way to, 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 to sort of penalize anyone. And, and that's what led to this chaotic situation. And so you, the, the only way you can make this work and, and, and get rid of this kind of controversy is to have a place where the penalties essentially match or, or exceed the benefits. Um, and then you, you, you get rid of it. I mean, one example, just an extreme example is Chris Correa, the scouting director for the Cardinals. He hacked into the Astros database. The FBI got on him and he was sentenced to 46 months in jail. Well, I guarantee you no one's going to hack into another database if the penalty is 46 months in jail. I'm not saying that's what you need to do, obviously. But once once the penalties are set against the benefits, I think then you can get back to sort of a, a game that that works. Yeah, I think I think that so Dan and I use the term consensual ethic, which is essentially what we mean when we say that the players and umpires sort of have this consensus about how they want the game to be run. And I think what Dan's talking about is that if if the game stops being run in the way that everybody wants it to be run, then I think this is what happens. And and this is what certainly what happened with steroids. I mean, I, I'm not saying that the players were like gung-ho and leading the charge for testing, but I think that the players kind of wanted there not to be any steroids and ultimately there's no other way to do it um i mean certainly the 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 stuff with um with with sign stealing it just reached the point even though sign stealing as we document in the book has been going on since the 19th century um we and everyone knew it and and the there was not a five-year period that went by when some somebody didn't accuse somebody else of stealing signs with binoculars it wasn't until fairly recently that it got to the point where everybody agreed that it had gone too far like there is a line and it isn't clear what that line is but everyone knew by 2017 that it was it had gone too far the the sign ceiling was so good so effective um or at least people perceived it was so effective that it was no longer tenable. That the idea that of some guy changing a number in a scoreboard and and getting a call once in a while like that was considered funny, but it got to the point where it was no longer tenable and something had to happen. Um, and I will I will say I will add by the way that um, about six weeks ago Max Scherzer um, came out and said essentially that what they should have done is just made it all legal. That he, he believes that he's smart enough to come up with a system that no one can steal. And if they steal it, well, he needs to do better. Um, so that's the other actual solution. I mean, the other the two solutions I think are to make it all legal or catch and punish the perpetrators. The middle ground was no longer tenable, which is just to let it happen and not doing anything about it. So one thing that I wanted to ask you guys, you know, obviously Connie Mack and John McGraw are two guys who died 50, 60, 70 years, well before I was even a thought on this planet Earth. Um, but growing up as a baseball fan, I know Connie Mack and John McGraw as two pioneers of baseball, two of the most successful managers of all, of all time. John McGraw, obviously, leading the Giants to the dominant years in the early 1900s, Connie Mack with the suit managing for 50 years. But as you guys point out in, their, in the book, 
they were both early proponents, uh, not proponents, but they had their own forms of cheating in baseball. Connie Mack froze baseballs. John McGraw was a star player on an Orioles team in the late 1800s, early 1900s that was notorious for cheating. Um, but when you think of those two guys, you just think of great managers. You don't think of any of the cheating that's associated with some of the guys in the PED era or Gaylord Perry with the spitball or Whitey Ford who would scrub the baseball with a nail filer. Why do you think we have certain perceptions of certain people as cheaters while other people, it's a blip on the radar? I almost call it the Nelson Cruz fallacy because he to me seems like the guy in baseball now that everybody seems to forget he got popped for steroids. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's hard to say. I clearly think there's some sort of boys being boys back in the, you know, early 20th century that just sort of went 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 through. And, and I, I would say something else. I, I would say that sort of the sophistication of the cheating that Mark was referring to earlier, more recently, I, I think has affected it, right? I mean, taking a, a, a steroid, for example, I mean, is a complex pharmaceutical that somebody's in ingesting and there's some manufacturing that has to go into that. There's a certain amount of secrecy that has to go into taking that. And, and I think that's um, the sophistication and, and sort of the, the fact that you're doing the deception where the umpire can't catch you, I think affects that. I mean, you know, when, when, when Connie Mack is like, you know, hitting his glove so that a foul, so that it, it, a strike would sound like a foul tip. Um, you know, I think that's sort of this umpire deception thing. And we have, you know, you, you talked about our premises from the players, you know, Keith Hernandez, you know, had one relative to it's okay to, if you're going to deceive the umpire. And I think much of what those guys were doing was, was umpire deception. Of course, they were also, at least McGraw was doing roster stuff too. But I think a, a lot of it has to do with the times, but a lot of it has to do, I think too, with just the sophistication of it. And then you have the whole umpire. If you're trying to fool the umpire, I think people just view that differently. I mean, we're all taught from when the, you know, when we were first playing little league baseball, that if you trapped a ball, you were supposed to hold it up and try and have the umpire say you caught it. And, you know, if you didn't, you probably were getting in trouble from your coach and teammates. So I would add to that. And I agree with everything Dan said. I, I think it does seem a little bit more Machiavellian, some of the stuff that's been going on recently compared to the olden days. But the thing I would add to that is that that is not to say that the people in the olden days wouldn't have done the new stuff because I think they probably would have. And we, we have a quote in there from, from Robert Kramer, who was the biographer of Babe Ruth um, and Casey Stengel and others. And he lived um, until about 10 years ago when he was a sort of a grand old man of, of baseball history. And somebody asked him in the, in the 2000s, what Babe Ruth would have done had he been had the same decisions to make as Mark McGuire. And he said, of course he would have taken steroids. I mean, like whatever it was that would help him be better, he would have done. I mean, that, that was, again, that's some guy that never met Babe Ruth talking, but I think that it is true that our perception of cheating has changed, but that doesn't mean that the players or the team owners are less ethical. I think they just have more tools at their disposal. Um, and I, I mean, John McGraw is, is an example I use as somebody who is very smart, um, always believed that he could outthink the other team and win his team 10 games a year. Um, and would talk very openly about that, had a huge ego, was incredibly competitive. 
and I don't think tremendously ethical at the end of the day. So I, I think that he, I, he probably would have done just about anything to win, honestly. Um, so, uh, yeah. And, and we, we don't know what these old guys did, right? We didn't have, we didn't have a video camera on them 24 hours a day like we do today. So Mark, you, you just mentioned with Babe Ruth, you know, the quote, the idea that he would have taken this if it was available because it would have been, you know, the best for him to win, to stay in the lineup, et cetera. And with that concept in mind, when you look at the Baseball Hall of Fame now, you know, I mentioned Whitey Ford, Gaylord Perry. There's countless guys in the 50s, 60s, 70s who took greenies that are in the Hall of Fame. So there are guys in the Hall of Fame now who, again, different than performance enhancing drugs and steroids, but who did some form of cheating at the time. So I was just curious uh, what both of your opinions are on PED users in the Hall of Fame, having done this book, researched the history of cheating, and knowing that, uh, again, maybe it wasn't on the level of steroids, but there have been numerous Hall of Famers throughout baseball history who did some form of whatever cheating was available or convenient in their era of the game. There's a, there's a lot, there's a lot packed into that. And I, <laughs> I would, <laughs> um, a couple of things. One is that, Amphetamines have generally been viewed very differently by the players up until fairly recently than, than PEDs. And a lot of that has to do with this whole idea of restorative versus performance enhancing. Um, the players view amphetamines as, 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 I mean, if you read this as a restorative drug, that's what we were talking about when you were talking about Dobson, um, that if you're trying to get through a 162-game season, it's really, really grueling. And, and amphetamines are just really a way to help you get through the season. And I, I think, you know, I would, you know, and, and that, and that's very much the way that the players should. The other thing I would say is that at least up until the, the early seventies, you know, the trainers were, were just dispensing this stuff, you know, we're dispensing amphetamines. So it's pretty hard to put it on the player and they weren't really illegal in any real sense until 1970. I mean, to me before 1970, they, they were no more, you know, illegal than, you know, taking any other sort of, you know, kind of non-prescription kind of prescription thing that you weren't supposed to but there was no they weren't on the federally banned list it's sort of after 1970 where it becomes a little bit more problematic but even so again i mean as we talked about this, this consensual ethic you know the people within the game players owners you know they didn't really view amphetamines as as a performance enhancing drug and so it was you know the whole steroid thing i mean it's much more complicated again because the other issue is we, we don't know, I mean, right, who, who did it. I mean, the only way we, we, we have the list is some names came out publicly. And then there was, you know, the Mitchell report that through a couple of, of folks who, who, who knew who were, who were associated with teams, knew who, who on those teams might have been uh, taking, taking the steroids. So it's just it's, it's, it's really complicated because we, we don't know who was guilty. So how do you sort of get your arms around that? I, I don't really have a strong opinion on it one way or the other. Um, I, I just sort of, I think what we try to do is, you know, put the facts out there and let people make their own decision. Um, but it, it, it's the steroid is, is, is particularly complicated because of the lack of knowledge. Yeah, I think it's sort of an unfortunate thing. I mean, it, it's a sad thing because, I mean, I think no matter how you come down on this, it's sad. It's sad to have an entire era of baseball history that is, you know, we're not allowed to celebrate is un is sad whether 
however you come down on it, it's just too bad, right? Uh, it's too bad that we can't um, we can't look at the same, or I shouldn't say we can't. We don't uh, look at the record book, you know, the way we used to. I mean, that's unfortunate, and I, I wish I could undo that. I I do feel. I guess I'm like Dan. I don't necessarily have a tremendous stake in it, um, but I I sympathize with people who two things. One, the people that are a bit younger than me, probably your age, who um, this was the era they grew up learning to love baseball, and that era's in some ways been discounted by the hall of fame, um, indirectly. Um, and, 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 um, not fairly as well, because there are certainly not only their users, but there are also people like Bud Selig and Tony La Russa and whatnot that are, that sort of, you know, were obviously involved. And, and I think that's created this distorted view. And I guess there's a part of me that wishes that, uh, you know, we can't really, I feel like I can't unsee what I saw, right? It's it's like it's a little bit like, and I know this. I know this is off topic. Um, probably one of my favorite football players ever was Reggie Bush, and I think in at USC. And the idea that that didn't actually happen is is hard for me to sort of deal with because I actually watch it happen. Um, but uh, so there is sort of precedence for you know this idea that certain football teams didn't actually exist or something or basketball teams. Um, so I, I, I guess, and I also feel like if you're going to have a rule, I can see someone saying, well, if you flunk a test, that's different. But a lot of these guys were talking about never flunked a test. Right. So they, they did it during that wild West time that we really can't, we can't really differentiate between who did it and who didn't. I think it's just, I think what Dan said is true. It's just a little, a little bit of luck. If you were on the Astros in the in that time, then you got off scot free. But if you were on the on the Yankees, then you know the trainer talked. So it just it just sort of un, unfortunate. Yeah, I think in general, and you mentioned my generation. I think when it comes to the Hall of Fame, the punishments handled handed down, circumstances surrounding cheating. It's just as a fan, it's the arbitrarity to it um, that I think for me has always been the most difficult thing in terms of who gets singled out, who gets punished, who failed the test, but who's looped in. Um, and that's something I've certainly struggled with as a fan to reconcile in my mind, similar to you. Uh, my last question for you guys, and thank you again so much for the time. Having researched this book, and as you guys mentioned, front offices are just going to continue to push the limit of what they can do and what information they can get in order to find the edge. What do you see potentially as the next cheating scandal that could rock major league baseball in the next 10 years if any hopefully the answer is none but as we've seen time and time again unfortunately that just seems like it's not the case yeah i mean there, it, there, there, there it's 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 hard to say um you know i think there's going to be some issues around you know i mean artificial body parts right i mean Mark and I go back to the old $6 million man and are people going to try and put, you know, I mean, at this point, you know, you do Tommy John surgery and the idea is that the ligament that they put into your elbow from some other part of your body is not going to make your elbow better than it was, but it'll sort of restoring you to be able to throw. Well, what if it's, you know, there's some sort of metal piece. I mean, it, it, it it's not too hard to think that you're going to be able to start getting pieces in there and 
and what's going to be banned and what's legal in terms of putting in your body. And then, um, you know, I, I think so. I, I think that's and then are there other sort of, you know, gene, um, you know, gene changing kinds of things that, that that people can, you know, illegal kinds of things that'll start doing gene therapy to, to people. I mean, I, I think most of the cheating, a lot of the stuff is on the medical side. Uh, going forward where there where there's still lines to be drawn and then people trying to figure out how to how to get around those lines um and then the other thing of course is the well another one other thing is the data from all of these um all of the biometric stuff the rapsodo machine and the edutronic machine where these teams are now getting just loads of data on their players and you know, are there ways that that can be used sort of unfairly to gain an advantage? I mean, right now you're not allowed to share that information with other teams and, you know, what, what, what might that lead to? So I would just say that the rapid amount of biometric data being gathered on the players too, and the rules around that and whether there's advantages to trying to get around those rules, I think is what I would say. I would say this, that if you think of any rule that gets passed or any system that gets passed, that the majority of the people are going to do what I would do, which is to figure out how to conform to the rules and live their lives. And there are always going to be people that are going to figure out a way to find an edge in this new system. I'll give you one example. If, if we go to um, the automated strike zone, which I think people think is coming, uh, there is a, there is going to be some uh, system put in place to determine the top and bottom of every player's strike zone. And I think that most, and I don't know what that is exactly. I, it's supposedly it's some combination of the, like the, what their height is, and then maybe they're going to stand in front of a, a, some machine to figure it out or something. Because uh, obviously Aaron Judge does not have the same strike zone as as well, any other human, um, but certainly not Jose Altuve. I mean, they're going to have to do that, and they're going to do that in advance, right? They can't, they can't do it during the game. Um, and I think most people will probably just sort of stand there and get the measuring tape, and like that'll be that. But I think the Pete Roses of the world are going to say, like, how can I make this strike zone smaller? What can I do to make this smaller? And I think there's going to be people like that. And this is just one example. And I think this is true of, of most new rule. If there's a new rule about, about, you know, put in place about how many Venezuelans you're allowed to sign, there's going to be a couple of teams that are going to feel like, okay, how can we get this to not count? How can we get this Venezuelan to say he's actually from Puerto Rico or whatever? Um, and I think that this is, this is the lesson that I think Dan and I got out of this book from the last 150 years is that there's always someone that's going to read a rule and say, how can I get this to not apply? Yep. Human nature is a very fickle beast in that regard for sure. Um, and yeah, both great takes and very interested to see how baseball plays out. It continues to evolve and hopefully there's less cheating, but as you both said, I mean, those are two things that even as a baseball nut would have never crossed my mind. Um, but if they cross your mind, I'm sure they'll cross the player's mind as well. Uh, the name of the book is Intentional Balk, uh, Baseball's Thin Line Between Innovation and Cheating. Dan and Mark, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, really appreciate it. And uh, looking forward to whatever you guys put out next.
It was fun. Thanks for having us on. Our pleasure. Thank you.